who says tech can't be human? I think in the earliest days, a lot of it has to do with just getting started. That's the number one reason I found people to stifle their own dreams and actually withhold doing things for themselves. They say, well, I just can't afford someone. I can't get employees. I can't do it because of this or that. Try it. Welcome to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. We get it. Another vendor running another podcast ad, trying to get you to check out their product. Instead of explaining to you what our amazing sponsor Exonius does, we've brought in an Exonius customer to fill you in. Take it from Jason Loomis, Chief Information Security Officer at MindBody. The sheer excitement of my team to have visibility into what's in our environment and have it all in one location is just, I, I can't express how important that is for us. Want to learn more about how MindBody enhanced their asset visibility and increased their cybersecurity maturity rating with Exonius? Watch the video at exonius.com forward slash MindBody. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com forward slash MindBody. What's going on, everybody? You're in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again, along with a very special guest today. Our guest this episode is Kareem Hijazi. Kareem is the founder and CEO at Prevalian. He's also the host of his own podcast called Introverted Iconoclast. Check it out. He's dropping episodes all the time. Kareem, we were excited to talk to you because of your experience in intelligence and espionage, but also your experience as an entrepreneur. It's a pleasure. Most importantly, welcome to the show. Ron, Chris, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you on the show. You know, you look at your resume, all the incredible things that you've done, intelligence, starting companies, doing cybersecurity stuff. But I'd have to say, looking at that resume, the most interesting out of the bunch has to be you getting your start as a bartender in New York. <laughs> what that in is, the world? It, that had to have been <laughs> such a learning lesson just in life in general. What were some of the big takeaways from, from that experience? I'll tell you in one fell swoop, it's the best spy training you can possibly get anywhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Social engineering at its best. You're there to, to pitch drinks and, you know, get people to cry in their beer in front of you or get really happy very quickly and, and drop their money on the table. It's incredible training. But yeah, and that's how unbelievably it wasn't linked. That particular experience didn't necessarily link in any way directly to what I got into with intelligence. But without question, to your point, the lessons you learn behind a bar in New York City especially are invaluable. You learn a lot about people. The sociology and psychology of people are kind of generally the same no matter where you are around the world. And you see a lot of it when people are socially inebriated with with alcohol. So Mm. it's a very interesting experience. And I was young and so I was quite impressionable and had a lot of, um, you know, I was able to kind of ingest a ton and just take it all in and then absorb it over the next few years going, you know what, I wonder if this tactic might work. Because a lot of intelligence fundamentally is all about relationships ultimately. You're out there building connections to people to be able to establish more connections in another you know third or fourth degree of separation away. And that's essentially what you're doing in any kind of social scene like that. So I know it's a little bit abstract, but uh, yeah, those stories are, are abound. I think I drop a few of them in my podcast, but there's many, many more where those came from. I love that. Chris, keeping you on your toes, asking about your experience <laughs> bartending. <laughs> 
you know, is very interesting about your background, you know, as you mentioned the espionage, but also your entry of just working class in general, working at a bar. You know, mm-hmm. how do these two things overlap? I would love to hear your definition of espionage and also sure. walk us a bit, uh, you know, tell us a bit about the highlights of working in that type of focus and industry. Certainly. Yeah. So the bartending really was a just a means to an end. I moved to New York City with the intention to become a photographer. Uh, I had formerly been trained as a photographer. I had all these grand illusions that I was going to be one. I did indeed get to be an assistant for a pretty prolific photographer in New York, which was wonderful, but that didn't pay the bills. So that's what led to the bartending. So it was really just a, you know, fell into it by happenstance. And interestingly enough, that led me down a path with, as I mentioned, getting to know a number of people. And then I decided just in one day that I had had enough of that. My days and nights were blending together. I was young enough to make a change, but I wasn't old enough necessarily to not, best way to explain it. And I moved back overseas, which is actually where I grew up. And we can get into that in later in the show if you're interested. And I joined a company that was very, very boring. <laughs> and the company did something very, very boring, but for very big, big companies. They basically helped them win contracts in the oil sector. And I sat there trying to do a job that was somewhat clerical in nature. And one day there was a an ask of the company to find out what a bid might be against a competitive company. And I asked the management of the firm, I said, what do you guys normally do in this case? And they're like, oh, well, we leave it to the, the vendors to figure it out. They've got these teams and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll do their investigations and whatnot. So to be clear, and I want to answer your question regarding espionage, I was in a corporate side of this business. I was the one getting information on behalf of a client so they could win. There are certainly, there's governmental agents like this that do a very similar job, but for socio, you know, geopolitical reasons and whatnot. We're very similar creatures. We just have a different target and a different audience. And ultimately, I literally went on my own accord to try to get that information for my client within the company I was working for and managed to do it. I'm not telling any details here, but mm-hmm. the short version of what it entailed was simply asking the right people the right questions that didn't know any better and they would tell you. And it is usually (laughs) that simple. And uh, it's just learning the way to slowly gain a confidence level with someone. It's actually where the word con man comes from, confidence man. And and ultimately, that is uh, how you get the information you need. Now, hacking, which is fast forwarding to where we'll probably get to in the conversation as well, is no different. It's just an electronic version of the same thing. So a lot of what I learned during my intelligence days translated directly into my counterintelligence and then ultimately my cybersecurity career. So all of these things are sort of linked together. And all of, again, stemming from bartending where I learned how people actually worked and how they think and what they do when they're interested or not interested and how to get them there. Yeah, 100%. You know, Ron and I, we got our start in the intelligence community. I was in the Marine Corps. He was a a contractor. But I do feel like there's a lot in our lives that we take from those experiences and bring into real life. And then vice versa, obviously, you had some life experiences that you brought into your intelligence capabilities. Is there any story that you could tell that really like personifies like real life knowledge or experience that would apply to something like intelligence? Oh, definitely. If you watch any person in a social setting, and one of the stories I talk about in one of my podcasts talks about a a strategy we use that we used to affectionately call the Trinity. And it included using three operatives that worked for my firm ultimately. And one operative would get to know the target fairly well. 
by happening to run into them after a certain amount of recon and understanding where they may be. And the information that that first operative would gather from that first interaction would be conveyed onto the second operative. And then that second operative would go meet this same target somewhere else at a predestined idea of where they might be. And this is the part to answer your question. It's amazing when you build any kind of rapport with someone, even if it's something as simple as, oh, I'm from the same hometown, or I grew up in the same way, or I ate the same things, or I went to the same grocery store, people open up. And then the social dynamics between men and women, in many cases, I would have women operatives work with me for the fact that a man is very quickly eager to share information they may know just to gloat or show off. And if they just do the right kinds of things, and we do this I'm married with kids, so I don't do this anymore. But when you're in your dating scene, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The mm-hmm. amount of information that flows forward by people in an effort to gain the affections or the validation of someone is incredible. And so real life is the training grounds for this. And I know you guys probably know this from the military as well. It's exactly what they would tell you when you're in a foreign you know, environment where friendliness, willingness to listen, and just keep your eyes and ears peeled to see what people are doing and how they're, they're being leveraged is the way to get the information you need. Not to mention financial motivation is a huge one as well. So it's interesting because people think it's a mystic art. And I'm sure as you both know, it's really not. It's just understanding the psychology of how people function. And unfortunately, in the modern world, when it comes to cyber, the lack of education is what people prey on now. Clicking emails that shouldn't be clicked on, telling people what they want to see or hear, and getting their curiosity peaked to where they'll click something. And that's essentially how these guys do it today. When we're looking at the word espionage, especially providing a service with anything dealing with espionage, you typically hear counter espionage, trying to stop these bad acts and prevent espionage from occurring. What goes into counter espionage? I would imagine that obviously is the defensive components, but what are some of the tenets or aspects that organizations or individuals look at? Sure. So my firm actually shifted from being a competitive intelligence company to being a counterintelligence firm. And the core principles of my firm were to do some very key things. One, identify where your weak spots are, your vulnerabilities, your points of exploitation or vectors of attack, you know, attack surface, what kind of people are more susceptible than others within your organization who would be easily manipulated into giving away information. So looking for essentially where someone like myself would be targeting, right? So I literally would say, all right, if I were to do this, this is exactly who I'd go after. You need to fortify these these parts of your organization. The other thing that's interesting when it comes to counter, and it's not as well documented or shared as what I just mentioned, is the notion of disinformation. I know it's an extremely inflammatory word these days with everything going on. But it is absolutely a a utility and a tool. A controlled rumor within an organization can do several things. It can it can weed out a mole that you may have, you know, a spy within your organization that maybe you don't know about that's been able to be hired through, you know, gotten through the background checks and whatnot and is actually siphoning information out unbeknownst to you. And that's a very powerful tool. And disinformation can send your adversary off on a wild goose chase and basically cost more money for them to come back onto course than it's worth. And they'll jettison the whole project. And then lastly, the whole notion of counterintel is basically finding out where your information is going and what places it might go to that has weaker operational security than what you maybe have and making sure those defenses carry it all the way through to its intended destination. Because it's one thing to build a castle moat strategy with your organization. It's an entirely different thing to secure your information in some fashion elsewhere when it leaves your your site. 
So those are sort of three core tenets of how you would build out of an, you know, sort of a, a system or a countermeasure system collectively. Uh, of course, it's much more involved than that, but at, at a high level, that's sort of where that lands. It's these systems that you can get from the military or the government or just your classic intelligence tradecraft that really applies to a lot of different things. That's how I went from doing intelligence to doing more cybersecurity centric things. And I did it through starting my own company. I was at Cyber Command doing all source intelligence, or if you want to even think about it as threat intelligence. And when we decided that we were no longer going to be doing that for the government, I was like, you know what, I'm going to bet on myself and, and try something new. And I decided to start a company. And I would say that that's probably one of the biggest ways I got experience, not only through having to sell threat intelligence, but also how do I package it? What are my offerings? I really had to like bump my head against all these challenges. And one of your podcasts, you talk about fumbling your way through that first startup that you you pulled together yourself because that's where all that learning happens. Can you walk us through a little bit of how you walk through that first company and some of the learnings you took away from that? Oh yeah, that's a great great point, Chris. So that first company I'm referring to where I did all of the competitive and then counter intel was a consultancy. It uh, was a service-based firm, right? So I was selling myself by the pound, which in my younger years it was great. It fed the ego. <laughs> it fed my um appetite for travel and, and you know, exotic ex experiences and locations. And I got to kind of live out the fantasy of being this sort of, you know, independent, you know, consultant that could flit around and make a lot of money and enjoy myself. And at the time, that was a fair bit of money for me. And I was happy. And, you know, the problem with that, what I realized very quickly is that it's only so scalable. When you're selling yourself as an individual or you are the brand, there's only so much of that can go, that can go around and you do have essentially a limit to your abilities there. And that was a hard lesson because I was very happy with what it was and I realized that I was going to hit a wall very quickly or a ceiling, I should say, with how big it could get. And that led me to the building and the and the you know founding of my next firm, actually, that uh, that sold to a company that I think everyone knows and loves very well named Mandiant. And mm -hmm. uh, that company that I, that I founded in 2010 was called Unvalence. And that company was the first product company I'd ever really gotten involved with to to build and start. And honestly, as a consultant, I had no business building product. <laughs> so talking about fumbling along the way to build something, oh man, what, a, what an experience. But in hindsight, it was the best possible way to learn. Because when you're starting a company where you're talking about building something that you can divest and pull away from yourself and sell, and eventually sell as a whole organization to where you can go with it for a period of time, steward it within the, the acquiring firm and then leave, that's the dream, right? That's what I was like, oh no, that's what I should have been doing all this time. But a lot of my lessons learned as a consultant really went into that product that we we built. And it was founded on, and Chris, you probably remember it from the days, I think that you probably shared some time in, in a similar place. We were now chasing and infiltrating command and control infrastructure of the adversaries with that company, not too distant from what I do today at Prevalian. And that intelligence that we were able to collect, that telemetry from the victims that we were able to collect was exactly what Mandiant needed as fuel for their capabilities and what they did from an incident response standpoint. So it was a tremendous opportunity for me to find the right thing at the right time. And that sometimes isn't perfect. There are things here you can control and there are certainly things that are completely stars aligning and a wonderful happenstance that things work out. You can try your damnedest to try to get it all right at the right time and it's almost impossible. So there's a little bit of luck here and, and blessing involved when it comes to having startups work. Security controls fail everywhere. 
they fail constantly, and worst of all, they fail silently. That's why you need Attack IQ, the leading automated insights platform to continually validate your defenses. Better insights, better decisions, and real security outcomes. Get it all with Attack IQ. Plus, check out the Attack IQ Academy for free cybersecurity training featuring the good people here at Hacker Valley Studio. Register today at academy.attackiq.com and let them know Hacker Valley Studio sent you. The other piece that I think makes startups work very well is their name. And Mm -hmm. I think you got very two unique names for your previous company and for your current company. What went into the naming of both of your companies? (laughs) That's a good question. So, yeah, and it gets harder every day. <laughs> if you want to get a .com, I mean, good luck. It's it's tough. You know, you're seeing mm-hmm. a lot more companies going and getting .ios and .cos and, you know, all these other ones, all these other TLDs. But Unveilance was interesting because I was meddling around with two different words as it related to what we were doing. And uh, what we were actually doing was something between unveiling the adversary and doing surveillance on them once we were able to identify them. And so we took those, I took those words and essentially smashed them together successfully and found that the .com existed. And that's what really put the rubber stamp on it for me to get it. And when I got the domain, it was like, that's it. We're going with this. So that for me was usually the litmus (laughs) test of whether it was a good name or not, if we could get the the domain to to click. And uh, Prevalian is similar. In fact, that domain is even older than the Unveilance one. I think I bought that domain sometime in the early 2000s for some other reason. And when I started this company in 2017, um, I kind of went back to my little, I think, uh, account where I keep all these park domain names of interest. And I said, what's a good one for this? You know, what's got a preemptive, proactive, you know, almost precognitive notional idea around this and what's going to help companies prevail. And I was like, prevailing, I have one here. Perfect. And so <laughs> it's not as sexy of a story as the Unvalence one, but it's a good one nonetheless. That's incredible. You know, when you, you look at folks that have started companies and then they sell them or maybe they, they just kind of sunset whatever way they do and then they do it again, there's a specific type of person that really just like, you know what, I'm going to continue to build and grow and create these things because it's hard to have a a successful exit is a tough thing. And then to say, you know, let's get back on that horse. Let's do it again. I think it's even tougher. Like, what would you say it is about your mindset that really is just like, you know what, I'm going to continue to build and grow these different things all the way up through content. Oh, no doubt. I think, um, with me in particular, I do have an unsatiable desire to kind of keep building and creating things. So that's kind of the number one most basic premise of it all. But as it relates to the companies that, have, that I built here where I'm trying to capture lightning in a bottle twice, Prevalian was founded on identification of a real problem. And I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs about this. And it's interesting because usually when I'll speak to friends that are still trying to get their bearings and they're trying to get started in this, I'll say, all right, this is a very basic question and you hear it a lot. And I certainly didn't invent this, but are you... Do you have you created a solution and now you're trying to find a problem for it? Or are you looking at a problem that you found a solution for, you have a good solution for? Because it's depending on which direction, if you're coming in from the problem side or the solution side, might dictate the success or failure of the whole thing. And with Prevailing in particular, this one was interesting because, and you guys will both know this, number one vector of attack these days, unfortunately, is a partner that has weaker operational security. It's supply chain. It's the ultimate vector of attack for anything, whether it was, whether it's physical, kinetic, or cyber. And 
one of the things that was so inspirational about the unveilance technology was that if we could somehow leverage that same methodology, but now deliver context about people's partners to them, they could then preemptively limit their their exposure to a contagious environment, you know, cyber contagious. So I know I sound like I'm talking about the pandemic, but not too distant. <laughs> not too distant, just a cyber version of that problem. You're trying to get people to cyber socially distance from each other. And that's what that was. Now, this isn't all rainbows and sunshine. It, we were a little too early. We were in 17 trying to pitch this idea that, look, we can tell you that you've got an exposure to an organization that maybe you're working with that has an infection that could laterally move into your environment if you don't keep an eye on it or you don't limit or you don't limit your connectivity to them. And people are like, no, it's okay. And then when solar winds happened, which I think hopefully your audience remembers that, that was a pretty big supply chain attack that happened to this company. I thought, we're done, we're good, we got it. This is it. This is going to be it. And unbelievably still no. Still people are like, well, we know it's a problem. We just don't have the the team and the talent to kind of address this yet. We understand it's an issue, but we're still trying to get budgetary approval and all that. So even when it looks like guys like myself have it on lock and we've nailed it and we got it all perfectly timed, and we don't. We're still struggling through the hard times. We're still trying to convince one person at a time every day to kind of believe in our vision. So it's tenacity, it's resilience, it's a little bit of stubbornness that you need. <laughs> you need to have a very willing family and spouse that will put up with your entrepreneurial crap. <laughs> For um, sure. That is a big, big part of it. Whoever you are with has to be understanding of that. So there's a lot of pieces that go together here. Wish I could claim it was all, all you. It just takes a village for a lot of these things to work. It really does. And Interestingly, we've created a little village at Hacker Valley Media. Both of our wives work at the company, and it's been really interesting to have that dynamic, to have husband-wife, husband-wife all kind of partnering up to build something. And I think there's been a lot of lessons I've learned. A lot of people say, never work with your spouse or a sibling, but I found that to be one of the myths of entrepreneurship. But just like with anything, there's a lot of assumptions that you make. What do you When you look back, to starting your journey as an entrepreneur, what are some of the assumptions that you made early on and what do you think has been just really dissolved as you really got the swing of things and being a multiple-time CEO? Yeah, it's a good question. There's a lot of things. I'm trying to think of the one that might be really the most pungent. One of the ones I would say is really, I will say there's zero question, is I was under the illusion that there was always a professional that that was going to be able to do something so much better than I could and let me go hire them. They're going to know more about it than I will. And unbelievably, almost every single time, and it's not that I know more. That's not the point. It's not that there's not people that are much more talented than I am at certain things. It's just that the belief that you can't do it, you need someone else to do it, is wrong. In fact, as a CEO, it's almost imperative for you to go and try it all. Even if you fumble through it and you get by with something that is subpar and then you do meet and find someone that can do it better than you can, it's better to have tried it and understand it so now you know how to call the the shots a little better. Understanding every little piece of the machine, learning how every little gear within the watch works is what makes a precise tuned machine function. When you're not good at the pieces, because we all have our favorite things to do in these companies, I like this part of the job, what you're doing, we're doing right now. I like talking about things. I like explaining it. I like evangelizing the capabilities and things like that. I absolutely despise the accounting and the financial part of the business. <laughs> Hate it with a passion. Mm-hmm. I suck at it too. So I certainly can use the help when I get a good CFO. But 
there are times where you just can't afford one. You can't bring someone in that's going to do justice. Or if you bring someone that's junior, they're asking you as many questions as you'd ask yourself and you might as well just do it yourself. So I think in the earliest days, a lot of it has to do with just getting started. That's the number one reason I found people to stifle their own dreams and actually withhold doing things for themselves. They say, well, I just can't afford someone. I can't get employees. I can't do it because of this or that. And they find all these negs to get themselves out of the mood to do something because they themselves are afraid to try to take it on. Try it. Fail at it. Do the graphics for yourself. <laughs> Go to Canva, even if it's horrific and it's all stock, at least you've started and you're you're getting going. And I think, and that's that hell's true for every single new one I start. I don't start by hiring the most expensive firms day one. I still do it myself in the very beginning. The logo I did for Prevailing myself, first day I started the company, it's still there on the website and business cards today. I think there's an extreme value in doing everything yourself, at least for a little bit. I mean, if you mm-hmm. look at something like our podcast, you know, it was just Ron and I in the shop figuring things out, figuring out how to edit, how to market, what makes a good show, what makes a good question, all these things. And we broke it down into their most digestible chunks in order to get better time after time. And it seems like you're not done doing that. You're also doing that with Introverted Iconoclast. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that journey, what that's been like, what prompted the show and uh, some of the memorable moments that you've had so far. Oh, no doubt. So that podcast was something that was a originally intended to be a another channel of, of marketing for Prevalian. So I had, I had originally tried to get one of my, my teammates to start it. Things got in the way and it never got started. So I was like, all right, <laughs> case in point to what I mentioned just 10 seconds ago, I did it myself. <laughs> and so I was like, let me get to this. Let me see how this all works. And what was fascinating about it was that I did the usual where I bought all these things I didn't really need to do a podcast. I got the mixer and I got this really great mic and I got some really great headphones and I, you know, got all the software and I got the, you know, platform in which I upload my audio for the feeds to be distributed across all the outlets. I did all that. And I even came up with the visuals around what I wanted the podcast to be called. And then I did what everyone does. I sat in front of an empty mic and I just stared at it. (laughs) And I was like, what the hell am I going to (laughs) say? You know, and this is the guy with all the stories in the world from all these years. And, you know, I had some incredible things to to share. And and it took me probably eight to 10 tries to get the first one done because I kept hating it. And then I Mm. finally got to the point where I'm like, this is just never going to get better. Let me just get something out because if I don't, I'm never going to, I'm just going to constantly stall. And that was the best thing I could do because perfection is the enemy of, of progress. It just doesn't, right. it doesn't allow you to move. And so then I would say somewhere around episode three or four, when I started talking about some of the path of my career, very similar to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, all the way up to the acquisition of Unvalence by Mandiant, I had a very high profile drop down, drag out battle with Anonymous uh, or a division of Anonymous called Lulsec Splinter Group in 2011. And I thought, well, that would make a really good episode, but I can't just jump into that. So maybe I should do a build up, talk about how I got there, talk about the bartending experience, going up to, you know, back to the Middle East for a while doing this counter or competitive Intel work and then ultimately to counter. And then I'll build up to this. And I did. And it was, I got a rhythm. And the minute I got that rhythm, I was like, okay, now I've got some steam. Now I know what I want to talk about. And every time I would do an episode, I'd think of another thing I'd probably want to talk about that would I'd jot down as another episode. And before I knew it, I had probably a notebook full of 15 to 16 episodes I could do. So I was not any longer sitting in front of a blank screen going, well, I have no idea what the hell I'm going to say. And I mentioned this before we got recording here. It's very cathartic for me. It, uh, 
speaking the stories out loud rather than just sort of regaling people over a dinner or thinking back on them nostalgically is extremely interesting because you remember things you don't remember when you're casually talking about them. There are details you remember. I remember meeting Kevin Mandia when he wanted to buy Unvalence and I met him in the lobby of one of the big hotels in Vegas during Black Hat and I never got to the expo floor because we spent the entire Black Hat together in a conference room with the entire teams doing the due diligence on the acquisition of the company. And it was like, I forgot we did that. You know, and I remember we went to a dinner in um, when it was still open in Carne Vino in the Palazzo. And the dinner was so extravagant. I had leaned over to Kevin. I was like, how much did this thing cost? And he told me the number. I'm like, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. I, I totally negotiated terribly. I could have asked for so much more for my company. <laughs> and I had all these thoughts that came back. And I was like, this is great. I need to write these down. And I'm like, no, I don't. I just need to tell them in a story. And so that's how this has turned out. And then slowly but surely, I did get into interviewing folks. And that's been a lot of fun. A lot of fun. That constant fuel for iteration really makes me understand and believe your skill as a hacker, someone that's able to take technology, almost like an alchemist, and turn nothing into a lot, ultimately. I got to ask, you've done so much. You've done, you've built businesses, you've worked in counterintelligence and many other elements of cybersecurity, and you are a great marketer because your podcast is doing so well you put all these elements together. How do you use this to become a better hacker? Someone that's able to kind of transcend where they've been to somewhere bigger, like where you're at today? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I, I appreciate that. I think, um, and again, I wish I could tell you this was all by design. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. They all sort of naturally fit together slowly but surely. I started seeing that I had a brand aesthetic that I liked myself that it would I'd always do with a lot of the things that I was doing, whether it was my companies or in this case, you know, the podcast, there's always a very specific type of font. There's a very high, high contrast visual associated with it. You know, to your point, I think, especially at, at my age now, and, you know, I, I don't mean maybe a little bit literally and figuratively, look, I'm getting to be a bit of an old timer in cyber. There's a lot more younger, sharper people out there that know what they're doing. Nothing, you know, I don't think I'd trade the experience in for some of, you know, the newer stuff, but it's being able to translate this now to another generation of folks that have good ideas. I do think that after Prevailing, I'll probably get into some sort of investing, mentorship, helping people understand how to do some of what we're talking about today. All of these things kind of fit together as the a perfect platform and baseboard essentially for that. And uh, the podcast is fantastic because it does allow me this. We were talking before we started the show. This is a uncensored somewhat free platform to share a lot of very interesting ideas to people that maybe otherwise wouldn't get it anywhere else. You can't do that in a workshop as easily. You can't have it be as casual as this. And I know that casual sounds contrary to something formal and from an educational standpoint, but sometimes this is the best way to learn. What we're doing right now is a really could be something very inspirational to someone young that's like, you know what, I'm going to finally take that leap and try it. And being able to say, you know what, he said, I don't need to go hire someone really expensive. I don't need to go and buy the best equipment. Let me just give it a shot. Maybe we've inspired a new company today. And if I can do that, you know, 10, 15, 20, a thousand more times before I'm done, then I've won. That's the professional side of the house. The other side, Ron, which is really interesting, is now my my interest is hacking my life rather than my business. So right. there's this old adage that I wish I had created, but I didn't, is, you know, <laughs> you work in your business, then you work on your business, and then you work on yourself. 
And so I'm at the precipice in between the on business and on myself piece, rapidly heading toward myself. And so things like health, wellness, we forget it a lot as entrepreneurs. We really fall out of line. We put ourselves in a really precarious position when we're older and we have all this success, quote unquote, financially and monetarily, but then we're unhealthy. So it's, and it's especially rampant within the cybersecurity and intelligence and not everyone looks like James Bond here, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and and, uh, it's, it's just, it's sad because people completely commit to this destination and they forget the journey is more important in many cases. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. It's really about making yourself better so that you can be better for everyone else out there. It has been an honor to chat with you. And and for the folks out there that want to learn more about you and your show, we're going to drop all of those details down in the show notes where you are listening to this episode. Again, Kareem, it was an honor. Love that you are here. We're going to have to bring you back on because I know there's tons of more stories that you can tell about your experience. But for today, that is it. And we will see everyone in the next episode. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee.